Hey, this is Kevin Rowe. On episode two of Community Chat, I'm so excited to have Todd Porter as our guest. Todd is a brilliant mind in the world of engineering and environmental controls, but he's also one of the most empathetic people I know. He has an amazing heart for people, for communication, and for helping people find and embrace their value and their worth. We spend the first part of our conversation talking about things like compassionate communication and valuing others. In the second part, Todd shares about cultivating compassion, an exciting initiative for 2023 that is kicking off later in January. There will be a number of links in the show notes, but the website to find out more and register for Cultivating Compassion, which is free, is bit.ly slash cultivating dash compassion. And yes, that will be in the show notes as well. With that, let's jump in. Hey, welcome to Community Chat. Uh, today, we have a special guest with us. Uh, that would be Todd Porter. Todd is the founder and catalyst at Kairos Collaborative, uh, which describes itself as a band of changemakers working toward a world where beauty, empathy, and love overflow for every human being. They've started projects addressing civil dialogue, racism, poverty, affor- affordable housing, and much more. Additionally, Todd is Research and Development Fellow at Idle Impact Incorporated, a company whose goal is providing $10 billion for Christian ministry and education. Uh, they work with churches, ministries, schools, universities, and more. Todd's varied educational background includes studying electrical engineering at Oklahoma Christian University, worship and music ministry at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and organizational development at Case Western Reserve University. Todd and I met in 2011 at Idle Impact. Uh, the CEO, Wes McDaniel, told us that he had a, a list of people that he would hire at any company he ever ran, and that Todd was certainly at the top of that list for sure. Um, Todd is also very very involved in a number of organizations. Um, one, he's the interim COO of United States Christian Leadership Organization, uh, which is run by the Reverend Steve Miller. Um, they are a comprehensive Christian-based human rights organization dedicated to achieving racial equality through Christian proclamation and functionally applying it to our nation's social structures and institutions. Their primary desire is to change hearts through penetrating discussion and analysis of historical data, religious, economic, sociological, and scientific, all processed through a Christian-based lens. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about today um, is a initiative that is being launched this year. Uh, it is being sponsored by a number of organizations, and I'm going to let Todd touch on those so I don't miss one in the process, um, but basically dealing with um, compassionate communication and getting basically getting to know each other, getting to value each other. Um, Todd led, led and leads um, some organ- some courses in compassionate communication. I know we've um, had jumped in with a book that was Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosen- Rosenberg, uh, which was a which is a great book. So if you haven't read it before, dive in on it. Um, but again, a number of other um, initiatives along that line as well. But so Todd, thank you for jumping on today. Um, certainly, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to um, anytime that we get to talk, I love anyways, but certainly to have you as a guest today. Um, so thank you for being with us. Hey, Kevin, thank you for the invitation. And likewise, anytime I get the chance to chat with you and especially to go exploring theology and the life in the church, um, it's a good day. So grateful for a chance to get together with you. Thanks, Todd. Um, So tell me a little bit about um, 
how you've come to this point where this is something that you're passionate about, about helping people be able to communicate um, in compassionate ways, helping people to come to value other people, to see them for who they are, for whom God has created them to be. Um, just tell me a little bit about your passion, because I know that's it's all in this area. So, Well, Kevin, I was born in 1970. No, I'm not really going to start there, except to say that my, my dad was a minister and spent my, I, you know, when I tell my story of faith, it's not the dramatic story that makes for good movies, maybe. <laughs> At least I tell myself that, uh, because I can't remember not knowing Jesus. I can't remember a time before I was actively involved in trying to follow Jesus. And I give my parents great thanks for having given me that gift. Because wherever I may wind up on whatever particular day, I wind up there by trying to follow Jesus. And that is a path that my mom and dad set me on. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And so just to like say it in brief, how I wound up here was trying to follow Jesus, who said that, you know, when he's comes out from the from the desert temptation and reads from the scripture in the synagogue, he reads from the prophets and he, he reads a passage where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, released to the captive and the year of the Lord's favor. And so when I say I'm trying to follow Jesus, like I think what we all mean by that is to do what Jesus did, what Jesus does, that we might show up in places with him and be engaged in the things he's engaged with. And so that passage, he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing is is saying to me that hey that's what i'm here to do is proclaim this good news to folks who are in poverty and being deprived living in scarcity this is what i'm here to do to set people free from whatever's bound them up this is what i'm here to do to for people who are in prison to figure out a way for them to get out of that prison this is what i'm here to do to meet people in their sickness and illness and help them be whole. This is what I'm here to do to proclaim and enact a jubilee in which everybody thrives. And so that's just one example of things throughout scripture where Jesus and the people of God before and after him are engaged with the world in such a way that the kingdom of God is present on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of my brothers and sisters in the world pray that example prayer Jesus gave as part of every worship service that prayers included, that we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, that we would say to one another, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that everybody lives, to me, is a big part of on earth as it is in heaven. And by living, I don't just mean that everybody survives, mm. that, that we have the minimum amount of food, air, and water we need for the organism in which we live to not die. That's not, it's not really living. 
It's certainly not the fullness of life in Christ, and it doesn't sound anything at all like streams of living water pouring forth from the deepest part of us. So I would like to live in a world <laughs> where that's the norm, where that's the way we interact with each other, where that stream of living water forms the river of life that's talked about in Revelation, that when we're interacting and being together in whatever context, at church, at the store, in the Senate, in a public square, in Austin or Washington or any capital in the world, <laughs> that the characteristic of our interaction is one that you could say, oh, the kingdom of God has come. And God's will, which is that we love God and we love one another. Mm -hmm. I believe somebody said the entirety of the law and the prophets can be summed up in those two statements, love God and love each other. Yeah. That that would describe our interactions with each other. That's what I'm longing for. So, so it's go ahead. <laughs> well, I guess I better stop and see if I've answered your question because that was a lot in response to what you were asking me. Well, and that's it definitely right along that line with it. So, I mean, it sounds wonderful and it seems like it should be simple, but obviously it's not. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the challenges that you see in trying to live this out? Um, Kevin, for me, one of the things that keeps me so isolated from other people is my own judgments about them, even about myself. That part of how I get alienated from myself and from the people around me is that I judge them to be right and wrong, that I judge them to, to be good and evil, that I judge them to be uh, for me or against me, that I, that I not only judge, but I, I, I sort everything into these dichotomies. Well, it's got to either be this or that. Mm. Even though I know of myself that I'm like this hodgepodge of good and evil, of justice and injustice, of joy and pain. Like, I know that of my own existence. I'm not sure why I think that's not true for everybody else <laughs> and why it wouldn't impact the way I even make those judgments. Mm -hmm. So if I were to like boil it down, yeah. So I think as Christians, we might want to say, oh, it's because there's sin in the world and there's, you know, we live in a fallen world and that's just how it is that it's hard. Uh, and I, uh, maybe there's a, a couple of points I might want to disagree mm -hmm. with that being the explanation, one of which is that Jesus in saving me, having saved me, and will be saving me in the future, like, I am as I am right now because of what, the, what our Methodist friends describe as this ongoing process of sanctification. Maybe we all describe it, just use that word for that, that... Yeah, there's some progress where we become more holy, mm -hmm. where we receive the mind of Christ, that we don't remain forever broken, but we progress on a path toward healing, that we grow in wholeness. So I'm saying that 
the broken world explanation is not so satisfying to me in its entirety of like, why is this so hard to, to love each other? Why is that so hard? Well, I don't think it's just because we're broken. I think it's because it's work. Mm -hmm. It was work for Jesus to, to put on a human body and, and go do carpentry things with Joseph and to walk around with the disciples, teaching people and doing rabbi things like, that was all he was he would have been tired at the end of those days right and that's mm -hmm. what we do when we spend ourselves is we need to stop and rest and refresh and that's hard and so i'm not i'm not i say all that to say i'm not fully convinced that just the fallenness of the world explains why it's hard i wonder if maybe it just is hard like it's work mm -hmm that we can do if we choose mm -hmm. and f for my part I, I i'm resolving to choose it and sometimes i do <laughs> so if you don't mind let's let's dive in a little bit and i know this will tie into where we're going to end up but let's tie into a little bit of what you cover in compassionate communication and how learning whether it's the compassionate side as a whole, but certainly the nonviolent communication aspects, how that brings us in to be able to relate with each other better, to have better conversations where we're actually able to get to know each other more. Mm -hmm. um, I know we were we were talking before we started about how it's easy to characterize a group of people that is a different group than the group that we're in and oh, they want to do this and this and this. But when we get to know someone who might, and again, I, I'm with you, I'd rather not have to have the labels, but um, someone who might carry the label of that other group, but if we get to know them, then all of a sudden we go, well, I know I say that that group is all about this, but is that person, would they really do that? Especially when we're building up the worst picture of who that group is, when we've gotten to know somebody from that group again, that that really changes that. I think it makes us wrestle with it. So again, kind of diving back into the compassionate communication side, the nonviolent communication side, and um, what that can do to help us tear down some of those walls, actually be able to get to know each other a little better, um, maybe address some of the needs that we have that cause us to react in certain ways and wherever you want to run with that. Wow. Um, hope, hope your hard drive has lots of space because there's so much I could say about this. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing up uh, nonviolent communication, compassionate communication. Marshall Rosenberg wrote a book about that and spent the bulk of the latter part of his career asking himself, how is it that we do get alienated from each other? Mm -hmm. What is it that we do that keeps us from seeing each other? And as he sort of explored that, realized, you know what, that happens internally as well, that we do these same things with ourselves, with destructive consequences that spill over outside just ourselves. And so the he, he, he made four observations. The first one has to do with when we judge, when, when we make moralistic judgments of right and wrong that that separates us from each other. It doesn't mean that there is no right and wrong. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we never judge, but rather that we approach 
ourselves with a degree of humility that says, this is what I see. That's an observation Mm -hmm. or hear or smell or taste or touch feel. Mm. This is my observation. Separate that from what I think about Mm. that or even what I feel about that, which is going to become important in just a minute, but that we, mm-hmm. we work to rather than, um, Peter Singe has a, a book called The Fifth Discipline, where he talks about the ladder of inference that goes from this sort of observation and facts and, you know, measurable things all the way to some conclusion and prediction about the future and the way that as humans, like we get, we wire up shortcuts from the bottom mm-hmm. of that ladder to the top. And I mean, we couldn't function in the world without doing that. You, you couldn't drive a car without having internalized all of the physics, mm-hmm. right? You're not going down the road calculating the forces and velocities and all that of people around you. Like most of us, I don't think could keep up, you know, with the rate of speed that we're moving, making all those calculations. Mm-hmm. But we do stop when the light turns red and we do judge how how fast the car in the next lane's going and what we would have to do to get over there to our exit like all of those things are happening so it's not even that there's not a place for all of that you know mm-hmm. bottom to top in milliseconds trips up the ladder of inference but if what we're talking about is other people and our relationship to them that can wind up separating us from them And so what Rosenberg would say is, look, yeah, you can do that all day, but if what you want to do is connect with somebody else, that's not likely to result in connection. Mm -hmm. And so rather than diagnosing or judging other people, what if we separate the judgment from what we're seeing? Mm -hmm. Another thing that he noticed is that when we don't take responsibility for what we're feeling, for what we're thinking, Mm-hmm. When we, when we work to, so here's an example. It's easy to say, and this is a common phrase in the society I'm in anyway, you made me mad. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> when we would apply what Rosenberg's talking about, we would say, well, when you said this, I felt angry. All right. Mm-hmm. So we separated the, the, what happened mm-hmm. from our conclusion about that, which might be because you're evil. Like that's sort of an extreme mm-hmm. version of that. And we've acknowledged this is my emotional response to that. Mm-hmm. When you did this, that sort of recognizes your autonomy and independence mm-hmm. and separates it from my inner world. I felt, so you didn't make me mad. That doesn't mean you didn't do whatever it was you did. Yeah. What it does mean is that when you did that, I had this response and that response I'm having can tell me something about what's important to me, what I value, what I was hoping for and maybe didn't get. Mm -hmm. So separating observation and judgment Mm -hmm. or not will distance from each other. Deny and responsibility or taking responsibility for what is going on with me, owning my own emotional and intellectual and maybe even physical responses to the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. Take take an ownership of those that, that they're mine. It's my mm-hmm. experience that's being had here. And I can both uh, be honest. I can acknowledge it. 
I can be honest with mm-hmm. myself about it. I can be honest with other people about it. I don't know about you, Kevin, when I, where I'm from, it was like the worst possible thing was, was to be angry. Mm. Yeah. It's like Jesus' instruction to be angry, but do not sin. Like I just heard the do not sin part and ignored the whole be angry part. Mm-hmm. And so that's one extreme we go to is to stuff anger. Another mm-hmm. extreme we go to is just to let it all out and, um, mm-hmm. you know, not be afraid to say it as it is and blow up whatever needs blowing up. And uh, part of what Rosenberg's want to teach us is that there's other ways that are more likely to connect us than those. Mm-hmm. So taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of a form of judgment to say what other people deserve. And so this deserve mm-hmm. thinking also distances from each other. And it's a really weird pattern I've noticed that I always deserve the good things and everybody else always deserves the bad things. Mm-hmm. That's weird. <laughs> it seems oddly consistent. And I can tell you from uh, multiple experiences that it is not likely to connect us to one another mm-hmm. when I get busy declaring what you do and don't deserve. The last thing Rosenberg would point us to is that when we make demands of each other, mm-hmm. it's not likely to connect us. That it it's... And again, maybe this is just my inner world. There's nothing quite like somebody telling me what to do to make me not want to do that. Mm -hmm. Even when I wanted to do it before, now that it's been told to me, this is what you will do, I suddenly don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that does satisfy the broken world or the broken world explanation does satisfy. Maybe that's a little bit of special brokenness for me. I don't, I don't know. But it's it's a real dynamic that happens that when we make demands of each other, it's unlikely that we'll get those demands met with a response mm-hmm. unless we've employed some kind of violence with them, some kind of threat, some kind of ultimatum. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get stuff done that way, but it's not connected to life. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, part of what I've learned from trying to understand what Marshall Rosenberg was writing about is that when I find other ways instead of those four ways of Mm -hmm. demanding and declaring what people deserve and making judgments of people and um, all of that, all that that involves and leads to, I have a lot better chance of connecting with other people and with myself. I find a lot more joy in my life as a result of having done that. Mm-hmm. Paul, Paul said the kingdom of God is not food and drink. And, it, you know, he had a point he was making in that context, but he did go on to say what it is, what the kingdom mm-hmm. of God is. Remember, we were talking earlier about on earth as it is in heaven. This is what the kingdom of God is, righteousness, peace, and joy. Mm-hmm. And so we participate in the coming of the kingdom of God. We become the answer to Jesus' prayer that, it would be on earth as it is in heaven when we contribute to more justice or righteousness, when we contribute to more peace, when we contribute mm-hmm. to more joy. Mm-hmm. And this is a way. This is this is a, a, a part of living in a world that is like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
it's hard work. And <laughs> also it's much more full of life than many of the alternatives I've been experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when it comes to how is it that we love one another and love God, one aspect of that is what I think Rosenberg's talking about in nonviolent communication, that we would, instead of all of those things that disconnect us, that we would observe and that we would attend to what we're feeling when we make that observation. Mm -hmm. And that we'd use those feelings to draw us toward what we were hoping for, maybe, instead of what we got, or what was so exciting and pleasurable. Mm. We had kind of have two categories of feelings, pleasure and pain. Now, mm -hmm. I don't want to do what I said causes trouble earlier, make a dichotomy of that, because there are all <laughs> kinds of bittersweet is one word we use to describe things that are a combination of both those. Mm -hmm. And yet, even with that pleasure and pain, I find that the things that I was hoping for, that I was wanting, the needs even that I have that were met, I would describe all those sensations and experiences as pleasure. And the mm -hmm. times when I don't get what I need or didn't get what I was hoping for, or somehow I'm disappointed, I'd describe those all as painful in some measure. Mm -hmm. Some things are more painful than others. And then the, the last piece of what Rosenberg would recommend that we do instead of disconnecting from each other, so separate observation and judgment. Mm -hmm. Feel our own feelings, take responsibility for them, and share them with the people around us. Ask ourselves, what, what is it telling me about what I was wanting or needing? And then the final step of nonviolent communication is to make a request that would bring mm -hmm. life, to ask for what we're needing, what we're mm -hmm. wanting even. I'm, I did a little bit of journaling years back where I realized I had sort of misinterpreted the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That somehow I had wired that up, like I knew what the right order of the words were, but I'd somehow wired it up in my head to say, the Lord is my shepherd, thou shalt not want. Mm. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but in all the English versions, that is not what that says. Yeah. And in fact, the entire rest of the context of that Psalm is exactly the opposite of thou shalt not want. Mm -hmm. And so like I've one of the bits of wholeness I've pursued is how do I like unwire that bit of there I'm going to make a judgment of that. I'm going to say that's heresy, it's terrible, it's evil to say mm -hmm. that as a as a living organism that experiences thirst and hunger that that's somehow bad. No, mm -hmm. that's what keeps me alive, those experiences of thirst and hunger. <laughs> if you don't drink water, you die. That's how this yeah. organism works that we're living in. <laughs> so all of those things are there to lead us toward life and the extent to which we acknowledge them and are honest with ourselves and each other about them helps us get mm -hmm. Yeah. So th that process, as I apply it internally, as I apply it with my closest friendships, as I, as I look out in the culture of at people I don't even know and try to imagine what it might be like to be them, what am I seeing that I find so off-putting or offensive or aggravating? And what is it they, they might be asking for instead of, you know, to, to meet whatever needed? Like the extent to which I can do that, even with strangers I don't know, turning up in new mm -hmm. stories. I find that my life is more full and that I find myself more connected to the spirit and God's work in the world. Mm -hmm.
that brings life than when I, uh, than when before I tried to practice that. Mm -hmm. Have you found that as you've practiced this again in your own life with, again, identifying your own wants and needs that weren't being met in those situations, kind of working again through Rosenberg's model there, that the more you've been able to do that for yourself, it's made it easier for you to then process where someone else may be coming from, like what you were just alluding to. Yes. Yeah. Put, you know, there've been various points at which I have struggled with all kinds of things mm -hmm. and certainly negative self-talk is one of those things. And so it's probably been two decades since my wife, Krista, said this to me. She said, uh, you know, I had brought some quandary or problem or thing that was troubling me. And she said, well, what, what would you tell a friend who had, mm. you know, brought this to you, who was feeling this way? And what I discovered was that I would never, ever tell a human being the things I was telling myself. Mm. Never. It was back to judging. I would judge that to be evil. Somebody who would say to someone else, the things I was saying to myself. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, and that is the kind of self-love you're practicing, it's no wonder that we're mm -hmm. judging and cutting and hurting each other. It's no wonder that I would be alienated from the people around me. I was, I've been alienated from myself. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I've gotten better about that. Mm -hmm. And like Wesley's presentation of sanctification. Yeah. Uh, we're saved. We're being saved and we will be saved. Mm -hmm. It's a process, not an event. Yeah. And so that ongoing growth and healing and journey toward wholeness, oh, don't get me wrong. If God wants to like do that in an instant, bring it on. I would be glad for that to happen. And in spite of my asking for that as such, it has not. And so I find myself in what I think is um, the journey most pilgrims take in a life of faith is you Oh, I love Disney. Do the next right thing from Frozen. Yeah. I think like sometimes I go just tell myself, do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the moment that has to do with continuing to grow in these practices of compassion about how I put into practice Jesus' instruction to love the people around me. Mm -hmm. So we're, you're heading into an incredible season throughout the year of 2023 um, of, of a cool initiative that has, is being championed by, it looks like, a number of really cool organizations as well. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the whether it's the problem that is being addressed by the initiative or the opportunity that's there um, that would bring this group of organizations together to support this and make it happen. Um, you know, flesh out what it is and then um, what you're really hoping to see happen out of it this year. 
Yeah, thanks, Kevin. And thanks for this chance to talk about it. I've been calling it Cultivating Compassion 2023. And I initially envisioned it as a full 12 months of immersion in this sequence of conversations I'll tell you about. I realize 12 months is hard for anybody to commit to, like I'm not even sure what's happening after next week once I figure out what day it is today. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I want to acknowledge that that is a challenge and it may be that we see some folks come and go over the coming months, but it is a, a bit of a journey that I'm inviting people to go on. And I came came by this particular plan, looking back about how I took the last few steps I've been taking toward healing and wholeness and toward the kingdom of God in the world around me. And so in work with the Charter for Compassion, which is a global nonprofit that exists to cultivate compassion all over the world, um, They've got interest in this particular project and are are working with me to support it. The North Texas, Northern Louisiana Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has a public witness team for peace and justice. So yeah, very long name for what is our denomination's presence in the public space to, to advocate for the kingdom of God to come to speak in public to one another and to whoever else is within earshot about what that might mean for us. So that team is part of the, was actually the originator of this entire project and sponsor mm-hmm. of it. The United States Christian Leadership Organization, you mentioned in my bio, that also centers compassion as the key method for bringing racial healing in the society that we're in. And Kairos Collaborative, the organization that's the kind of the umbrella for a lot of the nonprofit work that I do that provides uh, technical resources and sort of make things happen, project management kind of work for a variety of initiatives. Um, We have come together, these organizations, for the purpose of helping people connect with one another, stimulate compassion, and then be able to interact in ways that are different than what is predominant. So to get back to your question about what what problem are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Of course, my positive organization development says, you know, it's not a problem. It's a mystery to be unraveled. Okay, <laughs> the mystery I'm trying to un- unravel is why is it that we're distanced from each other, right? That's kind of what we we're talking about with Rosenberg's book. Mm-hmm. And what is it we can do to connect to one another? Like what has to happen for people in the United States to not be at war, whether that's verbal or physical with each other, Mm. not just to live together, but to thrive together. Like what, what has to happen? And so I think the first thing that has to happen is we, I want us to relate to each other being connected and living in community those are central to being human like that's part of how we define ourselves you mentioned earlier this kind of us and them thing that we do and there's a sense in which that whole us and them thing is meeting needs of belonging and community it's helping us Mm -hmm. sort of satisfy that there's a place for me that somebody will miss me if i'm gone that's important It's important Mm -hmm. to humans. It's important to me. And the flip side of it can be that 
the people I exclude may not just be excluded by me. Mm. There's some groups of people that are excluded by everybody that don't have a place at all, that their place becomes being excluded. I think mm. about the lepers in the New Testament, how they were outcast from society. I think about the people that Jesus hung out with who were mm. outcast from society, tax collectors and sinners, they called them. Mm that their belonging was in not belonging. And I'm saying, that's no way to live. And when I look at Jesus' example, like he was actively working against that way of treating people mm-hmm. and is inviting us to actively engage in something different than that, to engage in radical and active inclusion instead of putting up our own walls defining an us and them so that we can feel at home by the exclusion of some other group of people. So back to your question about what is it I'm trying to unravel? What is this mystery that I'm trying to unravel? It's the mystery of how do we connect and stay connected? And I'm convinced that it's by doing that hard work of connecting. Mm -hmm. So what I am proposing in cultivating compassion is a lot of hard work. <laughs> what I'd like to do, if it's all right with you, is just kind of yeah. step through the the sequence that I'm hoping to go through this year. Sure. Yeah. So we start inside. We start by talking about the emotional dimension of being human. Now, maybe you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said to yourself, facts don't care about your feelings. That's the thing people say, and Mm -hmm. I have spent quite a lot of my life actually telling myself that my feelings don't matter. And I don't know how it is for you and everybody else. What I know it is for me is that just because I refuse to acknowledge my feelings doesn't Mm -hmm. make me not have them. In fact, when I try to drive them underground, they come out in really hurtful and unpredictable and surprising and not in a good way, mm-hmm. surprising ways. And so this first discussion, this first book or set of content is a book called Permission to Feel by Dr. Mark Brackett. And mm-hmm. that book is really all about giving ourselves permission to feel. He, he does a really nice job of framing how to name emotions, how to navigate your way to them. And here's the thing we are going to have emotions. We're going to have them. Mm -hmm. And our society, especially for men in our society, has structured itself in such a way that that's not okay. Mm -hmm. I can be angry. And Mm -hmm. if something terrible happens, I might can be sad. And if nothing's happened, I can at least be okay. And we we find ways to substitute for being present to them, the reality mm-hmm. of our own emotions. We find ways to substitute or we find ways to like categorize. All right. Yeah. If I'm at a football game, all right, it's okay to feel joy when something good happens there. And it's okay to feel sad. And, you know, when the referee says something and makes a call, I don't agree with it's okay to be mad at that guy. Cause he's wrong. Like, <laughs> okay. So we've got a few contexts where we can experience that. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm my, my my deep hope is this is not like this for everybody, but for me, 
those contexts have been few and far between and in a lot of ways separate from the moment to moment reality. So this mm -hmm. permission to feel to me is like starting inside to give ourselves that permission, that freedom and some vocabulary to talk about it mm -hmm. positions us for the next book, which is nonviolent communication because <laughs> pretty much can't bypass an excuse to include that in some conversation. <laughs> so February's book is nonviolent communication. We've mm -hmm. talked a lot about that already, but I've mm -hmm. put permission to feel ahead of that so that we've got this kind of rich vocabulary mm -hmm. of feeling to be able then as we're expanding outward from there to talk about separating observation and judgment and tracing yeah. feelings to the needs that give rise to them and making a request of one another that might bring life that we've got a, a place to start because uh, again not i'm not saying this is true for everybody but at least in my experience i i come at emotion from a position of poverty that i i i've mm -hmm. i've not been adept at being able to talk about it Mm -hmm. And then the the third episode in March is to convene a group in uh, DFW in person. For those who are joining this uh, from out of the area, we would do this via Zoom. Mm -hmm. But to get together and talk about something, to apply those skills that we've learned. Mm -hmm. And to be able to apply the skills, you've got to have a topic that stimulates emotion. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So the first topic we're going to tackle in this conversation is uh, what's commonly called disproportionality. And what that's about is how in our healthcare system, mm -hmm. there are different outcomes of healthcare, and they occur in some really odd patterns, one of which may have to do with race. Mm -hmm. That in Texas, for example, the maternal mortality rate. So women mm -hmm. that die giving childbirth, many more black women die giving childbirth than white women. Mm -hmm. That's weird. Yeah. When you look at who's in jail, mm -hmm. you find many more black men in jail. Not in proportion. They are disproportionate to the number mm -hmm. of black men in the population or black women in the population in the case of healthcare. Mm hmm there are many patterns like that. <laughs> and if you look like me, I'm guessing this is your, your listeners won't be seeing us. I am a middle-aged white man. Mm -hmm. So if you look like me, it may be that like me, those things are hard to hear. You don't want them to be true. I don't want them to be true. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to, to face that any of that is happening, much less that it has anything to do with me. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the thought of it stimulates some emotion. And so uh, part of the reason for having a conversation about that is that I think we all have some emotional response to that. Yeah. And so having studied emotion for two months, gathering mm -hmm. with folks who've been walking with us to have a conversation about something that's likely to stimulate all of us in different ways, and to be able to face that together is to me the path toward loving each other. Yeah. So that gets us through the first quarter. You want to hear more? Yeah, love to. Okay, so I'm gonna keep going. So we've got this kind of emotional focus in the first quarter beginning in April. 
we're going to shift to a bit of intellectual focus. So Adam Grant wrote a book called Think Again. Mm -hmm. In that book, he subtitled The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And what he's trying to get at in that book is how do we look at our own thinking? And in cases where there's new information we encounter, new learning available, new observations we've made, how do we incorporate that in such a way that we're honest with ourselves about the evidence that's available to us, the experience that's available to us? How do we incorporate new learning? And sometimes it'll reinforce what we already know. Sometimes we'll have to actively reconsider what we already know. And that is kind of where the title of that book comes from. So <clears throat> I love a singer-songwriter named David Wilcox. A lot of his work is deeply meaningful to me. He's got a mm -hmm. song called Everything I Know, I Think. Now, it's a little bit of a verbal gyration that kind of takes you <laughs> sort of a Mobius <laughs> yeah. strip of music. Um, but that's kind of what Adam Grant's talking about, too, that our thinking is really one of our primary ways of interacting with the world. And that that thinking can also filter and distort, sometimes enhance what's happening mm -hmm. around us and our awareness of that, just like our awareness of our own emotions and acknowledging them, our awareness of our own thoughts and acknowledging them is also an important part of really, really connecting with ourselves and with each other. Mm -hmm. In May, we've teed up a book by social scientist Jonathan Haidt, and it's called The Righteous Mind. The subtitle of this one is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. So nothing controversial there. No, no, nothing controversial at all. What I did find in Height's work was <clears throat> maybe revolutionary is too strong a word. What he's doing is comparing sort of for ease of discussion, liberals and conservatives. Mm -hmm. And in that sort of distinction, he's comparing the moral frameworks that give rise to political positions or intellectual perspectives or just looking at the way we view morality and sort of the hierarchy of morality. Mm -hmm. How does that influence our interactions in the public square? How does it influence the policies we might advocate for as we work in a, in a governance of our society? Mm -hmm. I think those are really good questions. And I was fascinated with what he had to say about how those two things we might describe as polar opposites wind up tracing their roots back to these different hierarchies of morality. Now, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, this is another one of those things, maybe it's just true for me. But for a lot of time, like, like on the one hand, I want to say, oh, no, there is no hierarchy of morality. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And well, OK, there's a right is better than wrong. That's the hierarchy. <laughs> um, but the history and study and literature of, of ethics and philosophy of ethics. Maybe you've encountered this this uh, puzzle about, OK, you've got a train. Mm -hmm. And it's going down the track and you can throw a switch and it goes, you know, kills one person this way, kills five people that way, but everybody on the train lives. Okay. So, so you've got this kind of mm -hmm. 
physical intervention in this in this word game or mind game that you have to do you got a physical intervention and it's going to kill somebody somebody's going to die now why we can't stop the train like that's my question is what wait, yeah why is there even a train and how do these people get on the track maybe we could just do something about that <laughs> uh the game doesn't really accommodate that sort of question yeah but that's a, that's just one example of things that we're all i think familiar with of how we try to sort through the moral dilemmas and in the end our work in politics and society and governance like though we're trying to enact our response to moral questions mm -hmm. and the way we think about and enact our morality the things that stir us to to action like that's important Mm -hmm. um i'm tempted to i'm tempted to spoil the big learning in that i'm not gonna do it read the book okay. and come, come talk to me about it in may but there we go what's what we're on our way to then is a june conversation about critical race theory because you know mm -hmm. the the previous conversations weren't yeah controversial enough so there's a lot of conversation in Texas about critical race theory and mm -hmm. about what does that mean and about, you know, are we trying to make people feel guilty and is, you know, are we saying everybody's a racist and, and unless you're black and then you can't be like, it's a whole thing, right? There's folks mm -hmm. arguing in Austin about whether we can even talk about it or not. Um, you know, another, we don't have any writings of this guy in this series, but I love Mr. Rogers mm, was inclined yeah. to make fun of him when I was a kid. And when I grew up, I was like, wait a minute, here's somebody that is expressing unconditional love to people. What's not to admire about that. Yeah. Well, one of the things he says is that anything mentionable is manageable. Mm. I think there's a corollary that says, if we can't talk about it, we don't stand a chance of doing anything constructive about it or with it or in respect mm. to that. And so I, you know, part of, again, what we're trying to do is stimulate strong emotional response to these topics and engage with them in an environment of trust and care so mm -hmm. that we can examine those emotional responses, inquire what they're about and move towards some kind of understanding of one another, even mm -hmm. when we don't agree. Mm-hmm. Because again, maybe it's just me, but pretty much when there's anybody but me in the room, I can find something to disagree about. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even when it's just me, <laughs> I can be disagreeable. So this conversation about critical race theory, the first quarter one about, you know, the disproportionality. Mm -hmm stepping into those conversations that we might be resistant to or we might be inclined to say oh no this is you know that's them and we're us and we're not doing that what i'm saying is look in order to join god's work in bringing about life on earth as it is in heaven mm -hmm. there is nothing god does not see there is mm -hmm. nothing that god will not be present to mm -hmm. nothing so if we're going to follow jesus if mm -hmm. we're going to embody the image of god if we're going to 
take on the mind of Christ, then for mm. us too, there's a way for us to be present to whatever is and do that in a way that embodies love. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to do in this series. Awesome. Gets us halfway through the year. Mm -hmm. And in July, we've got another uh, work where we're beginning to whew, do something else that's really hard. This book's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And it's by a psychologist named Francis Weller, who's observed, at least in the United States, that we do not like grief. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, like, why would you like it? Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between not liking it and avoiding it mm -hmm. and embracing it as a reality of the existence of being human, mm -hmm. which it is. Yeah. And I would argue that it's part of God's existence as well. Mm. So on, on that one real quick, um, I imagine this is something you're familiar with. There were a, a number of people who would be. There's a number of people it was a brand new thing for. Um, but this December, on the longest night, so on Wednesday, December the 21st, our church did a blue Christmas service. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that was, you know, it was designed to be a time for those dealing with grief, with pain, with loss, with hurt in the midst of the Advent and Christmas season. It's all supposed to be cheery and merry and all of those things. And to be able to actually wrestle with those feelings, to have place for those feelings, a place to express all of that. And yes, we ended up touching on the hope that we have in Christ. And that's that's what that season ultimately about is the hope that comes out of that. But that we don't truly realize that hope and the power of that hope until we've come face to face with those feelings that we're having. And that ended up, that's of of everything that we've done so far in the time I've been here and, you know, which has been about four months now, I probably have gotten more response from that service mm -hmm. that that was a, such a meaningful time for people to be able to do it because every person that was there, we had something that was a grief, a hurt, a pain or a loss. Um, whether it was, you know, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a relationship, you know, the loss of a job, just what whatever it could be that we all had things that we could <laughs> we could connect with on that point. And then to be able to look around and see that we weren't alone in that. Yes. That again, it's the it is a very much a common part of our experience of hum as humans. And then I love with what you just touched on at the end of your last comment there that God joins us in that as well. So yeah. One of the things that Weller points us to in that book is this reality that I wish wasn't, but I'm convinced is that anything we love, we will lose. And I, I find, you know, when Jesus says anyone who seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Like mm. there's a, so there's, God's own loss 
mm-hmm. which is hard to comprehend. Yeah. As as that it could even be a thing. Mm-hmm. And yet we see Jesus in the garden having stepped into a human body and anticipating the thing that is arguably the most feared experience of being human, which is to end it. Mm-hmm. I think that is the ultimate empathy. I think the incarnation is the ultimate expression of empathy, mm-hmm. is the ultimate expression of compassion in the sense of suffering with. Mm-hmm. That God did not spare himself mm-hmm. from that thing that we avoid with every fiber of our being mm-hmm. and the grief that is associated with loss. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a truly beautiful and I think inspiring thing about Jesus' life that... Mm-hmm. Even in sorrow, he did mm-hmm. not excuse himself from this thing mm-hmm. that's such a part of being here. So part of the work Weller is doing is to identify these different categories of loss. Mm-hmm. The loss associated with living in a world where violence happens, where people get hurt, living in a world where people die and that we lose what we love. Living in a world where we're hoping for things to be one way and they turn out a different way. All these sorts of loss, may mm-hmm. they may originate in different circumstances for all of us, but we hold that in common, mm-hmm. that all of us experience loss. And in these moments where we're trying to navigate as a society, things that we may have some sense that we're called to give up or we may have some sense that we're called to hold on to and other people have a sense that they're being called to give it like that whole piece of tension that where we will acknowledge for Mm -hmm. one another this seems like it's going to be really painful and the what i'm asking you to do this thing that I'm proposing is asking you to give up something that's dear and important to you. Mm-hmm. And another thing I think we can see in Jesus' example is that acknowledging that and making a willful choice mm-hmm. to give in that situation makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. That offering as opposed to having it demanded back to what we were saying about Rosenberg Mm -hmm. can lead us to a dramatically different reality. And I'm saying, I think might be more consistent with life and with the kingdom of God. Mm. So part of why I am, um, I've kind of sequenced this last part of the year is to to take this step of, okay, we've got this kind of internal focus of what are we feeling? How are we thinking? When things that we thought were going to happen don't, when we're feeling sorrow and loss, how do we process that and how do we do it together? This is the contribution that Francis Weller is making. Mm-hmm. And he describes it as an apprenticeship with sorrow. 
And that's really important at this stage of this journey that I'm going extend this mm -hmm. invitation to, because where we're going to go next is to look at different dimensions of loss people have experienced, mm -hmm. specifically associated with life in the United States. And we begin that in August with a book called See No Stranger, mm -hmm. a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love is the subtitle of that. It's by a woman named Valerie Kaur. One of the things she says, I almost mentioned earlier, but I'm going to say it now, is that the, the sort of behind this book, the see no stranger piece of it, is that we can look, I'm going to just read what she wrote because it's mm -hmm. so beautiful. We can look upon the face of anyone or anything around us and say, as a moral declaration and a spiritual, cosmological, biological fact, you are part of me. I do not yet know. Mm. That is how she says we see in one another, not the stranger, mm -hmm. is to see in one another that part of ourselves that we don't already know, recognizing that our lives are connected, even when it seems like they're not. Mm. Yeah. And so on the way to that realization and that expression, she describes her experience and the experience of her family who are Sikh in their religion. Mm. And in the course of being Sikh and practicing Sikhism, men wear turbans. Mm -hmm. they, they bind up their hair in turbans. And the reason they do that is so that you can recognize them mm. and know if you need help, that is a person who's committed to help. Go to oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's why they wear the turban, so you can see them. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, yeah. the people who wore a visible expression of their willingness to help looked a lot like people mm -hmm. who'd committed a, what we viewed as an act of war and mm -hmm. that led to a lot of violence in response to violence cost her family and friends mm. and it it's important that we've traveled this journey about sorrow because mm -hmm. the outcome of many of these things is devastating september 11th was devastating yeah i remember and i imagine anybody that was sort of alive and at the point of mm. awareness would remember what was going on what happened the mm -hmm. last half of a week sitting in front of the TV trying to figure out what is happening. Mm -hmm. And that sort of response of somebody has got to pay. Mm -hmm. And then action we took to make somebody pay. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of sorrow. And so as we listen to Valerie Kaur and talk about the sorrow that she experienced, having, a, having that framework from Weller to be present to that without being destroyed by it mm. is part of what we're hoping to cultivate in this last part of the year. Yeah. The next book is by a man named Mark Charles. This takes us to September. 
and he's written a book called Unsettling Truths, and he's talking about what's come to be called the doctrine of discovery, which was sort of the justification for folks sailing across the ocean and finding places that they didn't know were there. And of course, the people that already lived there knew they were there. Mm -hmm. But the though it's it's been repeatedly refuted by the Catholic Church, it's also been repeatedly pointed to a point at which some of the popes were trying to encourage evangelism in the new world mm -hmm. in ways that folks who were not quite so much interested in evangelism as in wealth twisted that maybe i don't know i wasn't there mm -hmm. yeah what i do know is a lot of people have died and been hurt mm -hmm. and what mark charles is pointing us to is what that like what it how does that uh what's it to us why mm -hmm. does that matter in 2023 there's a lot to grieve there yeah and again for somebody that looks like me i'm imagining because i feel this way myself it's like well i didn't do that like mm -hmm. why are you asking me to feel anything about that that's you know those people are dead and gone for generations like i wasn't here didn't do it but the question is whether there is lingering consequence of that having been done yeah so you you read in the bible that the sins of the fathers are visited on the children but the faithfulness of god is to a thousand generations. I fear I've misquoted that now. Maybe you. You're pretty close for sure, though. <laughs> yeah, I usually have to look things up to quote them aloud <laughs> before I'll trust myself with them. Um, so what I'm what I hear in that is a reality that yeah, actions have consequences, and also God does something, intervenes in ways to bring healing. What mm -hmm. I'm suggesting is the perhaps one of the ways God would choose to bring healing in the United States is by calling the church to be present to, to hear and to mourn these stories that mm -hmm. we resist. Y'all, I resist. I'm resistant to these stories. I don't want to hear that stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I got enough sorrow of my own. I don't need to have inherited all of this but I have, and I'm convinced that I'll go back to a Disney movie, Finding Nemo. You can't, you can't swim over it. You got to swim through it. You remember they came up to the jellyfish yeah. and all this tunnel and you're looking down that tunnel saying, that looks dark and scary. I ain't going down that. And it's worse when you try to go to the top. I don't get stung by yeah. jellyfish. I, th I, th <laughs> I think we are maybe two centuries into trying to go over this thing mm -hmm. and you got to go through it. Yeah. And I think God is calling us as ministers of reconciliation among the body of Christ to go through it ourselves and to invite the culture around us to go through it. That we would follow the example of Jesus who though very in nature god did not consider equality mm. with god a thing to be held on to yeah that 
we would not exempt ourselves from suffering because we did not do the thing and the generations have died that did. Mm. Because I don't want to face this either, but I think the consequences of that sin remain. Mm -hmm. And all of the alternatives to facing them just keep it going. So, I want to do some really hard work, get to September and unsettling truths because it's <laughs> going to be tough. Mm -hmm. People's history of the United States, uh, that's just as bad. <laughs> it's in October. Yeah. So Howard Zinn has looked at American history and the history of the Americas mm -hmm. and asked, what does this history look like when told from the perspective of the people who were here already? Mm -hmm. And again, we, we, I am so invested in the United States as a city on a hill and a beacon of democracy mm -hmm. and on the moral high ground. And so to even talk about these things is like, no, that's not who we are. But what if it is? Mm. And we don't face that. And by not facing it, we continue it mm -hmm. and some and our children inherit it. I don't even have children. I don't want your children to inherit this. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I don't want any child to inherit it. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, this series that we're talking about is the culmination of my life and my life's work, mm -hmm. which I hope will not be finished. So maybe culmination is <laughs> not quite the right word. I think there might be more to do after we do 2023. But in so many ways, I feel like God has brought me down a path, brought me down mm -hmm. this path in order to invite the people around me down it too. Acknowledging that it's hard. Mm-hmm and that God is calling us to it and that God will supply what we need according to his riches and mercy. So people's history of the United States is a tough take on yeah. what happened that brought us to 2023. He begins in 1492 with Columbus mm -hmm. arriving. It seems, and I and I haven't read the book, so you can you can tell me I'm completely off base on this. But the way you phrase that of reading our history from the different perspective, so often when we go to scripture, we read it from a perspective of oh, we're the we're the people that they're writing about that uh, you know, and so much of it is written to the people oppressed, <laughs> the people who have a you know, a power over them that certainly aren't the superpower of their day. And when we come to read it from a different perspective and realize today we're the ones primarily in power and we're primarily the, or certainly one of the main superpowers and all that, that um, realizing that approaching scripture from that different perspective changes so much how we read it and what we get out of it and what we hear 
um, what we don't like, what we like to hear out of it, what we don't like to hear out of it. Yeah. And I imagine there's a lot of that in this this book as well. So yeah, yeah, there's so much that stepping into somebody else's perspective. Mm -hmm. That's empathy. Remember, we started the year talking about emotion and empathy. Mm -hmm. Stepping into somebody else's perspective, that's the incarnation. Mm. The word of God become flesh. Mm -hmm. Stepping into somebody else's perspective, I'm saying is the call of God on all of us. Mm. And that we have an opportunity to experiment with that together by walking mm -hmm. down this path I've just described. One of the favorite things I ever heard Erwin McManus talk about mm -hmm. was to that somebody was asking him, well, you know, so how do you how do you come up with these sermons and how do you, you know, basically asking him kind of a hermeneutical sort of question and he said, well, yeah. You know, it's tempting to read yourself as the hero in these stories and so I try to yeah. read myself as the villain. Mm -hmm. And imagine what that's like and cuz you know, we might be Yeah. Sometimes Thanks. all of us. Yeah. Very true. So that leads us to our third conversation. So we're taking all this as we go and three times we're meeting together to practice. How do we extend empathy? How do we be present to these things that are hard to hear and that we may disagree about with one another? Like how mm -hmm. do we do that in ways that honor the image of God in each other, that honor the gifts that image brings to us as we interact? And so this discussion following Unsettling Truths is one that's centered on affirmative action, which is a set mm -hmm. of policies intended to try to try to do something about, mm -hmm. you know, things that happened in the early part of the country, early time of the country, that put some of us at advantage and some of us at a disadvantage. Like, how, how can we, like, Get, sort that out what can we do and then the other like that that's a piece of what we might call reparations mm -hmm. which is a way to pay back what that has cost mm -hmm. again these are really stimulating topics and not yeah. always in a good way and yet our avoidance of them mm -hmm. i'm saying is perpetuating them and i would like that to stop yeah the last book in the series is one called Finite and Infinite Games. And the short version of that is that there are two kinds of games. Actually, Kars is pretty, I like his consistency with Marshall's nonviolent communication because what he says is there are at least two kinds of games. Mm. He's avoiding the polarity by saying, well, uh, yeah. there may be more, but here's the two I want to talk about, the finite ones. And what he means by that is that they end when somebody wins. Mm. that's the objective is to mm -hmm. end the game because you've defeated your opponent versus an infinite game of which the objective is to keep playing. Mm. I bring that up in the end of this because some have said, well, racism, for example, is a thing that will always be with us. And it's tempting, uh, I have been tempted, and in fact have thought, oh, you know, that was over with the Civil War. Like, we, we had a war about that. <laughs> and at the end of that war said, you know what, it's not okay to own people. So no more of that. Except that it turned out not to be. 
that mm-hmm. we found, you know, while we didn't have title to people, we found other ways to keep them from owning land, to keep them from participating in the government, mm-hmm. which led us to the civil rights movement of the 1960s and ultimately the Civil Rights Act that put into yeah. law, yeah, you, not only can you not own people, but everybody gets to vote and everybody gets to participate and you can't pick and choose. Mm-hmm. And so we found some different ways to pick and choose. We found ways to divide up real estate and and not invest in pieces of property and to push people toward low-income jobs and to, you know, you find ways to work around and still get what you want. Mm-hmm. And so then in the 1980s and 90s, late in the last century. <laughs> It's hard to believe it's been that long, actually. I know. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, we got we we did political correctness, right? We so now we're trying social shaming as a means to equity. Mm. What I'm suggesting is okay. Yeah, I totally agree. It's bad to own people. Let's not do that. I totally agree that everybody ought to have. A, equal opportunity and the chance to to vote and participate and be part of the society. Like, mm-hmm. we don't need to be excluding people. I, I, I'm longing for radical inclusion, like Jesus was, yeah. radically inclusive. And I don't think shame is a good way to do that. So, you know, I'm going to agree with some of these outcomes. I don't think shame was a, like, that was a bad idea. Yeah. And it has produced some bad consequences, some division in our society that may have been present all along, but now we're experiencing it a different way. And so with finite and infinite games, I want to bring us the discussion of the year to a close with some assurance that this is really an infinite game. The kingdom of God is an infinite game. Mm -hmm. Equity and inclusion. That's an infinite game. Loving one another, we're not going to like win that. We're going to keep playing or we're going to lose. Yeah. That's an infinite game. And so I want to bring this discussion, this hard discussion to a close that's also an opening Mm -hmm. that says the objective of what we're doing is to keep doing it. And then who knows what will happen in 2024? (laughs) All right, so Kevin, mm-hmm. I thought this was going to take a year for me to describe all that before it was over. What questions do you have? Um, so somebody, somebody's interested in taking part of this. Um, what are you asking of them, and how do they, how do they say I'm in, and kind of move forward in that process? What I would love is for people to read a book a month, mm-hmm. show up to discuss it, and then once a quarter show up to have a conversation with some other people who have been on the same journey. Mm-hmm. Now, I also recognize reading a book a month is enough for some people to say, oh, that's no, not gonna. <laughs> like, I haven't read a book a year. What are you talking about? I'm with you. I've been through seasons like that myself, and I've got good friends that like that is totally not their thing. They're not going to read it. Mm-hmm. So all of these books also have audio books. So if it helps mm-hmm. to listen, maybe that's a thing. 
I also have YouTubes or other published video content of these mm -hmm. topics that are two hours at the most of these authors talking about their work. And so that's also an option to sort of condense the content of the book. And, you know, if you don't learn by reading, it's probably better mm. <laughs> because mm. uh, that would just be misery and probably you would choose not to finish it because why would you? It's misery. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So that's also an option. I would love for people to be able to somehow interact with the content from these yeah. authors in advance of the conversation. And then our monthly, so like we'll read a book and at the end of the month, last Thursday of the month, get together via Zoom and talk about that book. I'll have some practice things to do in that. And then we'll do kind of the deep dive practice once a quarter. Mm -hmm. So that's the invitation uh, I also recognize, yeah, a whole year is a long time to commit to do something most, uh, you know, a Thursday evening a month. And so it, I acknowledge there may be folks who want to dive into this, like at different points. Mm -hmm. I think the most value to be had is in the journey that there's, mm -hmm. it's, it really is a path that where especially these early conversations about empathy and compassion are ingredients of practice through the whole rest of the year yeah uh, in, in ways that might make it really hard to engage in some of these conversations without it so even if you just kind of independent study some of it and then you know get on the train mm -hmm. at the next stop um, that you've come down the path i think might still be helpful yeah and then to your question about how do you sign up well or how do I, how do I acknowledge I want to participate? If you were to go to bit.ly, cultivating-compassion, that will take you to an Eventbrite registration page. And there's a brief, there's an event for each event. Mm -hmm. um, the most important one at this moment is the one that's about to happen in January on the 26th. Um, where we're talking about permission to feel. So if some, whenever mm -hmm. somebody first hear this, um, find that book and um, come on the 26th via Zoom, you can sign up for that one. And then I'm working on a sign me up for all of them version of this thing. At the uh -huh. moment, it's like one at a, you know, there's yeah, yeah. 12 sign up things. So bit.ly.com backslash cultivating dash compassion is the sayable way there's also a really long code that i'm not gonna try to tell you what <laughs> internet and i am typing it in right now to make sure i've got it right um and we can add it in show notes um for anybody to be able to find that link um all that so but so you're saying obviously the best case scenario is somebody's able to be a part of all the sessions and, and everything. But if somebody goes, hey, I can't make a particular one that doesn't rule them out, your strong encouragement at that point is, hey, make sure you're engaging with the content itself, at least um, to be able to jump in as, as much and as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think that's the best learning from it. And also I'm aware I've been talking about radical inclusion. So for me to somewhere along the way say, no, you can't be included. Like now I'm in a moral quandary. So. There you go. Now I know we had, we had talked about this previously. The plan at this point is not to record sessions, correct? That is the plan. Yeah. Uh, 
because I think what we'll be doing is discussion and interaction mm -hmm. and things that, you know, if you, you had to be there for kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, and also I worry that people will be more willing to engage fully in these hard topics mm -hmm. if there's not, you know, if it's not somehow captured for ever <laughs> in yeah. a recording somewhere that might come back to haunt them. Cause yeah. I, I really, I know I'm asking a lot and to engage in some really difficult things that we don't want to talk about and mm -hmm. are kind of embarrassing sometimes when we're honest with ourselves about like what we really think about some of this stuff, mm -hmm. like, back to what I was saying about uh, political correctness and the moral shaming of the eighties and nineties, like nobody wants that. <laughs> mm. So yeah, uh, I, I think to, to be fully authentic and present and honest with each other, as well as because I think it's about the experience that recording them yeah. won't serve what we're trying to do as well as we might like. And I'm certainly open to other ways to structure this. You know, somebody wants to spend 12 days in a row working on it. I guess we could do that. <laughs> and you probably love that part, but I will. a little harder to pull off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm feeling a little bit tired thinking about it. So <laughs> there's also that, that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, anything, I mean, broad, broad question. And I would love to obviously have some further conversations as part of community chat with you as well. So we don't have to solve all the questions that we would have. But anything else that, um, particularly anything related, but anything else that you're, is just kind of burning right now on you that you said, I, I wish I, I could throw this in as well. Hmm. I'm thinking we may have like three episodes of content here. By <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I guess the thing I'd want to say I'm imagining that there's folks who, if they've listened this long, maybe are still not so sure uh, if they'd be, you know, like, why well, is this just going to turn into some, some more moral shaming? Because that's how we do things here in our country with each other. And I don't know if I've said enough, though I've certainly said much. I don't know if enough of it has uh, made the point that I'm about to say, which is that part of the journey I'm on is to ex express this radical inclusion, even with people I disagree with. And that the call for us mm -hmm. as followers of Jesus, who as people came to the garden to take him away, mm. when his followers tried to defend him, told them to put away their swords and healed the guy that they harmed, mm. who was there to arrest him. That, that's who we're following, yeah. is the one who does that. Now, I don't think anybody's going to cut off my ear or my buddy's going to cut off your ear. So... <laughs> I'm not saying that's, you know, the thing we're risking, but this is a risky endeavor. And what I want to commit to all who are within the hearing of what I'm saying right now mm. is that 
part of what I'm saying is even when we disagree, there's a way for us to honor the image of God in each other. That even in our disagreement, we're agreed about love mm. and that we're enacting that disagreement in love. Mm. I so want to do that. And the only way I know to do it is to try. Yeah. So that's the invitation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited about it. I, I love the thought behind it. And um, I know this this part came up of, I saw it pop up on your page that you'd posted it was coming up. And um, again, having been in a number of these types of conversations with you, I know that um, it's an incredible opportunity for an incredible journey that I, th I think will make a great impact on anyone who is a part of the journey. And what I think we would all want our hope to be is that if that happens, then it will make an incredible opportunity on those that we come in contact with mm -hmm. then as we go forward as well. Yes, that is what I'm hoping and praying for. Awesome. All right. Well, again, Todd, I want to thank you for your time today um, and, and certainly for your work and your effort in putting this initiative together. I'd love to encourage anyone and everyone who can to be a part of that. We'll link the the URL. We'll, we'll link that in show notes um, so people can jump in and do that as well. But Todd, thank you again. And awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a privilege to visit with you today. Thanks. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening to the Community Chat Podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at communitynorthbc.org to find out more information about this podcast or our church. Thanks for listening.